When our son was in grade school, he was invited to join an elite group, the Natural Friends, they called it. So they invited all the parents to a meeting to explain the concept. The stated goal was to stop drug usage. They said they had asked the kids in the school to name the most popular kids of all, and ours were the ones that the survey identified. The idea was simple, convince the most popular kids not to use drugs and the others would follow. An understandable and reasonable proposal, yes? But these people promoting this public school program were barely more than kids themselves, all of them in their 20s. Do you have any kids? Uh, No. (laughs) None of you? No. But we really believe this is a good program. We just love the interaction with the kids. We really bond with them. There would be weekly meetings with the kids, and they wanted to take our kids for a weekend every few months without any parents. They were sure that having any parents there would stifle the kids' interaction with them, the barely more than kids. (laughs) And isn't it obvious that their influence was more important than any impact the parents might have? And, of course, they could convince the kids not to get involved in drug use, whereas parents were basically useless. But wait a minute. You're going to convince them not to do drugs? Why don't you just tell them not to? Well, that wouldn't work for you, would it? Well, first, we're not your children. Second, if I trusted you, it might. Well, we believe you have to show them how damaging drugs are, show them they have to make their own decisions, and they'll do the right thing. (laughs) A few of us parents kind of exchange glances like, wow, are these people complete airheads or what? Uh, We went on to question them more, but I decided to do some research. I was one of the only people who had access to the Internet. It was pretty new then, so it wasn't as much use as it is now. But still, after some careful researching, I found out some amazing truths. First, the program had been renamed by our local leaders because some bad press had come out against it, and they didn't want people to get the wrong idea. The bad press pointed out that almost every single grade school student who was brought into the program during their high school years became addicted to drugs. Almost 100%. I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem to be something about which a parent could get a wrong idea. (laughs) The program was developed by CHEF, the Comprehensive Health Education Foundation. As it turns out, they were local to the Puget Sound area. The main office was less than five minutes from our house that we lived in then. I drove by and was impressed by the size of the building and the obvious affluence required to construct it. Very nice building. I was able to find out a lot of information from local sources. This anti-drug education program was not their best-selling. That was their anti-smoking curriculum. Surprisingly, This program was now used almost exclusively in third world countries. There were but a handful of school districts in the entire U.S. still using it. They said the school districts had discontinued it because they had pretty much all used it by now. But how did third world countries afford such expensive curriculum? And it was magnificently expensive. The answers to these questions are, you will not be surprised, 
related. U.S. school districts did not stop using it for the reason they said. It was because there was a universal phenomenon associated with the program. Smoking of students increased by percentage of student smoking and use per student wherever this program was used. Anyone want to guess how this expensive anti-smoking curriculum, this educational material, was funded in third world countries? If you guessed the Philip Morris Company, you were right. The world's largest maker of tobacco was funding this program. Chef had managed to get themselves listed as a non-profit foundation so that Philip Morris' contribution was even tax deductible. <laughs> and, of course, Philip Morris could look like they had a conscience. The reality, you probably guessed, in every country where the program was used, smoking increased by percentage of population and by individual usage in the population. The attendant increase in Philip Morris profits and in cancer and heart issues followed. <laughs> so much for the health aspect. One other interesting fact emerged in my study. The two men who were chefs extravagantly paid top managers had worked together before they started that 5013C. Their first product? Well, they tried to promote various illegal drugs, but settled on a documentary promoting the full legalization of marijuana, a carcinogen much more effective than tobacco. It will not surprise you to learn that our son didn't take part in that program. You will also not be shocked to discover that over the years, we watched many of the kids that participated turn to destructive lifestyles. Early on, I asked one of the 20-somethings about the statistics of addiction with the kids as they grew up. They recognized that this was true. But they were so insistent that the program had to work. One of them told me about how the kids cried around the campfire as they talked about older kids who had become addicted to drugs. Certainly all that emotion must mean something good was happening, right? It sure made the leaders feel good about what they were doing. But it's not about feelings. It's about life. Becky and I decided these people had not earned the right to affect our children's lives. In fact, they had quite clearly shown that they should not be allowed anywhere near our children. Now, this long involved sorry, story does relate to our scripture for today about that great question, to whom should we listen? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why should Paul think he can tell the believers in Philippi how to live their lives as Christians? Why should Timothy, who is with him, be considered an authority figure to them? What gives Paul the right to write this letter? Why should they listen to him? What criteria should be used to determine the worthiness of our leaders and teachers? This letter has been kept and carefully copied by believers for nearly 2,000 years. There are a great many ancient copies of it in the possession of many scholars. Why did the original audience so revere this work? Why was it so quickly recognized as inspired by God? Why have so many, over so many centuries, 
found it so beneficial. Some background. The church in Philippi was fighting discouragement when they sent Epaphrodites to find Paul and to ask for his help. They might even be described as depressed. Life had dealt them some pretty hard blows. It is not, then, surprising that there is are almost as many references to joy and gladness in this little work as in all of Paul's other writings combined. It only takes a little thought to recognize the importance of Paul's consistent and constant insistence in this letter on proper thinking. But that's not where we want to go today. <laughs> we need to understand why a letter from God's person Paul was so eagerly, even enthusiastically received. Why did they so trust Paul? Why did they think he did have the right to write them and give them such life-altering instructions? Why didn't they have the same reaction to Paul that I had to our 20-something enthusiastic, eager, wannabe government agents? Well, let's look at the history behind this letter. Were they mistaken? Or had Paul truly earned the right to write this letter? And maybe... Maybe we'll pick up some thoughts on how we ought to live life so that people give us the right to speak into their lives. Side note, that thought ought to make shivers run up and down your spine. (laughs) To another church, Paul wrote, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. As we consider the life of Paul as it relates to the Philippian church, we need to consider whether we, are living our lives well enough to say this same thing. Wow. We should live in such a way that we can say, live like I live. (laughs) I told you, it's a chilling thought. Uh, Intimidating is another word that comes to mind. Maybe we can ease the anxiety a bit. Let's look at Timothy some as well. (laughs) He wasn't an apostle of Jesus Christ, although he was an early leading pastor, one of the very first in the entire world, uh, young as he was. But he didn't write this epistle, even though he was closely tied to Paul and his work, including his work in Philippi. But still, we can learn from looking at Timothy's life. What was the first thing that drew together the lives of Paul and Timothy and this wonderful, if anxiety-ridden, group of people? Actually, I think we have to go back a bit further yet, before any of these people met. It was when Paul had not even yet considered going to what, nowadays, we call Eastern Europe, where Philippi flourished as a Roman colony. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Do you catch how God was preparing things here? Timothy believed. In a letter written later to him, Paul mentions the faith that first resided in his grandmother and then his mother. So on the maternal side, there was a history of belief. We don't know his father's position as to faith, but we do know that his dad was a Greek, and Philippi is in Greece. And Paul looked very Jewish. So Greeks might be a little bit standoffish even if they were believers. But Timothy could wade right into that society and bring Paul, the great teacher, with him. And there's even more to this part of the story. A lot more. 
Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. I don't know about any of you guys, but the thought of being a young man in his 20s submitting to circumcision just so that some cantankerous Jews might be willing to listen to the good news seems like some pretty serious commitment. What would we be willing to do so that maybe someone might listen? Our heroes evangelize all over the area and Paul tries to get to some cities to the east that they had wanted to visit before, but the Holy Spirit keeps him from that idea. So he pushes west and ends up on the shore of the Aegean Sea, not exactly sure what he's supposed to do. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Philippi is a leading city of the area of Greece known as Macedonia. Other than a quick stop at the seaport village of Neapolis, Paul and his group headed straight for Philippi. Did you notice that Paul wasn't absolutely told his vision was from God? At least it seems so. But he, Timothy, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, and all the others with Paul thought it a pretty sure confirmation. Do we, perhaps, need encouragement as well? God is trying to teach us, all of us. So it is not uncommon for things to be difficult. But he also knows our limits. The psalmist wrote, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. When Paul reached Philippi, he was unable to take his normal course. Apparently there were not ten believing men to start a synagogue. We'll talk about this more another day. He made his way to the next most common place believers collected, a quiet place by the riverside. Apparently it was common for believers to gather in such places to pray. No men were there, maybe only women gathered in these places, but Paul sought them out. This was pretty unconventional. Men just simply didn't talk to women in public. Fun little side note, we have a critique of a certain man's etiquette from that day. Apparently they were talking with their wives and daughters in public. Their wives and daughters. They were berated for their gauche behavior and told to reserve such male-female interactions for the privacy of their homes. Sometimes maybe we need to be willing to stand against social norms to tell someone the good news of Jesus Christ. Although I suppose it might be more the reverse for us. In any event... At this work in Philippi, God provided someone to take care of Paul and his companions financially. A rich business person who even offered them free room and board. A rich business woman. Now we don't have just social issues. What about Paul's masculinity? Especially in that society. Shouldn't a man stand on his own two feet? Yes, of course. But what does it mean to work for God? Do you remember how Paul started this letter to the Philippians? Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Are we willing to give up our role as men to be a servant of Christ Jesus? Things are going great for the team. Paul and Silas are team teaching and having a wonderful effect. But then Satan brings his first player up to bat. One of his demons has possession of a girl through whom he keeps people entrapped by fortune telling. 
The demon cannot resist trying to disrupt Paul's ministry. He, Paul, finally has had enough and tells him, the demon, to take a hike. You gotta wonder, did this demon just not recognize who Paul was? Bugging Paul, the apostle, was not a smart move. Anyway, this slave girl's owners can't make any money with her now, so they have a hissy fit. They get a whole bunch of people riled up, and before you know it, Paul and Silas are in jail. I'm going to jump to the end of this story and tell you the Philippian jailer becomes a believer and joins the church. Remember that he, the jailer, will probably tell this story a whole bunch of times as people ask him why and how he became a believer. Think about that and the effect it will have on the church as you follow the story. Paul and Silas are accused and the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods and when they had inflicted many blows upon them they threw them in prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Bad enough? Having received this order he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now I ask you if you were thrown in prison after being beaten, hauled to the lowest part of the dungeon, and put in stocks, how would you respond? It's hard to imagine my not whining. Come on, God, I was just doing what you told me to. Why did you let them do all this to poor pitiful me? Remember, as you listen to Paul and Silas' response, that the jailer will tell this story over and over to the church. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Singing, praying, in stocks, in prison? Wow, these guys are the real deal. Wouldn't it be great to know, without a shadow of a doubt, that we would pray and sing in similar circumstances? They didn't have TV in that particular jail, no internet access, nothing. So I suppose it's not terribly surprising that the prisoners were listening. But you can be sure the jailer, who will tell the church this story over and over, heard them too. I guarantee you he had never heard anyone pray and sing in his jail before. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Many of us have grown up in the church and heard this story dozens of times. Paul and Silas hadn't. They didn't expect this. The jailer hadn't heard this story either. The jailer, whose life depended on his keeping these prisoners safely ensconced in the bowels of his jail, a jail now wide open to all the world. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now think, you've been beaten by the comrades of this jailer, and he has placed you in the worst place in the whole jail, and in stocks. What will you do? But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Amazing! Still in stocks, with raw sores all over his back, how could he possibly be so prepared to be the good guy in this moment? How can we possibly be prepared for any moment God brings to us? The jailer, remember he's going to tell this story over and over, called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
This jailer knew the real thing when he saw it, and he bet his life on it. What a strange testimony Paul had with this man. This man who was a member of the Philippian church when Paul wrote his letter. The jailer who had tried to make Paul's life miserable now does all he can to make Paul's life comfortable, even washing his wounds himself. God granted not just the jailer belief, but all his as well. He wouldn't even wait to be baptized. He did it right in the middle of the night. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. That once hardcore jailer probably thought he had seen it all by this point. It must have been fun to hear him tell this next part of the story. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. You see, the city officials realized they've got nothing on Paul and Silas, so they sent a note to the jailer telling him to let them go. And this is where the jailer's jaw drops. And this is the point later when the wonders in his voice grows as he tells the story over and over again. And in real time, this is the point where the city officials, when they found out, probably had to be picked up off the floor. But, Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Philippi may have been in Greece, but it was a thoroughly Roman city. They even lived tax-free. All that would disappear if they were found to have broken the Roman law. Maybe more to the point, the city officials stood the chance of being the ones who were put in jail. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. To mistreat a Roman citizen carried a maximum penalty of death. That scared them, and it should. But the thing that must have shocked both the jailer and the city officials is that Paul and Silas waited until now to declare their citizenship. As soon as the owners of that no longer demon-possessed girl started to complain about them, they could have played this card and avoided the whole thing. Why not cry out when the people started beating them? At least tell the jailer as he was dragging them to the depths of the prison and putting them in stocks. Why didn't they say anything? I don't know. Luke simply ignores this seemingly obvious question. But maybe it's simple. Perhaps Paul just couldn't bring himself to call on his Roman citizenship to get him out of trouble that came about because of his heavenly citizenship. I think he understood that if the Holy Spirit got them into this mess, he'd get them out. How much do we depend on the Holy Spirit rather than our own devices? And why did Paul pull the Roman citizenship card now? Well, that's definitely easy. To protect the work of the church. The church of which his new friend, the jailer, is soon to join. These officials, and all the people who caused this trouble, are going to be walking on eggshells for a while. They don't want to take any chance of getting in trouble. So when our jailer told this part of the story, he was certainly able to show the time they had to freely proclaim the gospel after this event. 
It was years before Paul wrote the Philippian letter that the jailer became our brother. After a while, Paul left Philippi to evangelize other towns. That was his job, after all. They understood, but I'm sure they were pleased when Paul sent Timothy to help in the church. It appears Timothy and some of the others made more than one trip to Philippi, and Paul came through town a few times encouraging and teaching. You see, that's another part of this whole story. If we want people to hear us when we talk about Jesus, then we need to develop a history with them. Naturally, your families have a history with you. Is it one that makes questions about Jesus Christ easy? Or are they afraid you'll get upset when they start asking questions? Questions they think have no good answers. We don't have to know all the answers. Knowing some of them is enough. So let's make sure our knowledge is sufficient. That's why we have a Bible study on Sunday mornings. That's why we learn more of Scripture on Wednesday evenings. If you're doing well with these and really want to get serious, you can even join Special Forces training. It's hard, but you'll know a lot more answers. Not all by any means, but enough. So, we can learn enough to have some answers, but we'll never be the Apostle Paul. As God himself said, Paul was a chosen vessel. He had a vision that brought him to Philippi. He could heal people. He could cast out demons. He endured beatings and imprisonments for the gospel. Okay, he had been trained by none other than Jesus. We can't be an apostle, but maybe we can measure up to Timothy. You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy had proven his worth in serving Paul, and the people at Philippi had seen some of that history unfold. Do people see in us a proven worth, or do we fall far short of living the way we know God wants us to live? I think we need to examine our own lives. Perhaps we have things that we have long held in reserve from God. Maybe later today you can take 30 minutes to talk with God about those things you haven't lived out correctly. Maybe we'll need an hour. (laughs) But let us each examine our own lives and ask this question. What is there in my life that people would question if they knew I was a Christian? What thing in me keeps people from seeking Jesus? Let's change our lives. So what Paul, at the end of his life, wrote to Timothy could also be said of us. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Be a person from this day forward, who earns the right to write into the lives of those God brings to you. Your grandchildren should know you are the one to whom they should listen. Your children, your brothers, your sisters, but also the friends and maybe co-workers God brings into our lives. Could some change in you 
cause your neighbors to want to listen to you. A Christianity that doesn't change you isn't real. If you see yourself changing, know that you have a right to write into the hearts of those God brings near you. Write carefully. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Father, right now we can each think of some people in our lives who look at us and who need to know Jesus Christ. They need to know your grace and that your son died for them. And we want them to know. But maybe there's a check in us that says, wow, can I be the guy to tell them? <laughs> Am I the person that can walk up to them and start talking about Jesus? Help us to live our lives from today in a way that makes it possible for us to talk to people. I mean, we're never going to be perfect, not in this life. And certainly we don't know everything we need to know. But with your help, we can talk to anybody you bring to us. Help us, Lord, to write into people's lives in a way that helps them to see you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. Please feel free to worship with us, maybe this next Sunday. You can also join us online at southbeachhope.org. We'd appreciate your financial support if that is possible. We are a tiny church in a small town, but at least with the help of Sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and everyone around the world. Hopefully we'll someday be able to worship God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture.